pop quiz. I'm free to do what I want any old time. Who's the band and what with, for a bonus mark was the year? I'm not expecting anyone to shout out, don't worry. If you said the Soup Dragons in 1991, you get full marks. If you said the Rolling Stones in 1965, you're obviously from a previous generation, but you also get full marks. I'm free to do what I want any old time. We're certainly free in 2022, aren't we? Free to eat what I want any old time. 24-7 McDonald's, just eat. Free to watch what I want any old time. Netflix, Amazon Prime, and hundreds of channels. Free to sleep with whoever I want any old time. Any man or woman or person who doesn't identify as one or the other. Free to be who I want and then to be a whole new who I want any old time. Isn't that the beauty of Facebook and Instagram? I get to be the me I want to be just at the creation of a new image. In Bangor in 2022, we had freedoms that most human beings couldn't ever have dreamt of. We're free. But tell me this, have we found life? Have we found our happily ever after? This autumn, we're inviting you to choose life. We're looking at Moses' great sermon in this book of Deuteronomy, which he preached to the people on the borders of the promised land before he died. In our studies so far, we've seen Moses call the people to choose your future. That's a better future than your, your parents' past. And to choose your calling. Your calling is to show the beauty of God to a watching world. This morning, we're going to see that Moses invites people to choose freedom. I think that title for this morning's sermon might surprise you uh, in the light of what Peggy just read, the, the Ten Commandments framed as they are with thou shalt nots. Don't worry, by the time we're finished, you'll, you'll understand. By the way, I'm not going to preach the Ten Commandments today. They're, they're so rich, they're so fundamental to God's calling on us that they deserve a, a much longer uh, treatment. So, so maybe sometime we'll do a, a series on the Ten Commandments. What we're going to do this morning is ensure that we understand the place of the Ten Commandments, the place of the biblical law. And we're going to do that by focusing on the first uh, six verses of chapter 5 that precede the commandments. And we're going to learn a couple of absolutely key truths about how God relates to us, about the covenant that he's made with us. We learn that his covenant, uh, in his covenant with us, God relates to us in grace and he invites us to freedom. He relates to us in grace, he invites us to freedom. So first of all, this idea that he relates to us in grace. 
When we read a book like Deuteronomy and when we see what appear to be in the coming chapters long list of laws, what we tend to do is take our modern understanding of laws and read it backwards into the biblical text. When we do that, we get entirely the wrong answer. You see, for us, laws are institutional. They're written by faceless legislators. Whenever we break the law, we, we offend nobody in particular except some sort of nebulous law of the land. It couldn't be more different with biblical law. In the Bible, law is personal. It's given by a person, the living God, to people, people like you and me, and the law is relational. It serves as the terms of a relationship, a covenant that God is establishing with us. And that makes all the difference in the world. Let's notice this in our text. First of all, notice that this covenant is with us. Verse 2. Moses tells the people in the plains of Moab, the Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Wait a minute, Moses. I, I thought all the guys who'd been at Sinai are dead by now. Didn't they all die, at least those of them who, who were at the edge of responsibility? Didn't they all die during the 40 years in the desert? How then can you say that the Lord made a covenant with us? But Moses won't leave it. It's not just a slip of the tongue. He re-emphasizes and clarifies in verse 3. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made his covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. What's going on here? The Hebrew scholars tell us that this is probably a case of relative negation. Moses isn't saying that God didn't make the covenant with their ancestors. He clearly did. But what he means is he made it not only with them, but also with you. God's made his covenant not only with their, their parents at Sinai, but also with you here and now. You see the implications? All future generations of the people of God are just as much a partner to the covenant as those who stood that day before Mount Sinai. Chris Wright tells us that the, that the covenant is never a thing of the past because Yahweh, the living God, is a contemporary of every succeeding generation. Brothers and sisters, this maybe answers a Deuteronomy question for you. When we go and look at an Old Testament book like Deuteronomy, this isn't ancient Near Eastern history that we're studying. Don't imagine for a moment that the God of the Old Testament isn't for you. God, the covenant-making God, is alive and well today. He seeks a relationship with you. This covenant is with us. Notice a second thing about this covenant. It's personal, verses 4 to 5. The Lord spoke to you face to face. By the way, this doesn't need to be literal for the metaphor still to stand. If you remember the events of Mount Sinai, you'll know that Moses was the mediator. He's the one who met with God face to face. And we can read more about that in our own chapter here, verses 23 to 31. Although Moses was the mediator, 
Israel had experienced a direct and a personal encounter with the living God. They knew the God who made this covenant with them. They'd heard his voice, the, the one who'd given the laws as terms of this covenant. As I said a moment ago, biblical law isn't institutional. It's personal. Everything that happened on Sinai was about a personal God establishing a relationship with persons, with people. God was, in effect, at Sinai marrying his people, Israel. This was the marriage ceremony. The law was to be the terms of their relationship. So God's covenant is with us, and it's personal. And those two aspects simply contribute to the, the first great reality of the covenant that we're thinking about today. It's all of grace. Look at verse 6. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Notice again, it's, it's not institutional, it's personal. These demands of the law, they're based on a God, on, on who God is. He's the Lord your God. And on what he's done, he's brought you out of Egypt. But notice now the grace. The best way to get a handle on this is to go back to the source story. Flick with me, please, to Exodus 19, page 76. By the way, since Deuteronomy is a re-preaching of the story of Israel so far, it, it makes sense that we have to go back to that story uh, a number of times to, to understand Deuteronomy well, to get a sense of Moses' sermon. So Exodus 19 on page 76. The NIV heading on that page tells us that we're with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. If you look across the page, you'll see the heading for chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. You'll notice as well in chapter 20, verse 2, that we have the same prologue here that we have to the commandments we've just read in Deuteronomy. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Think for a moment with me about what's happening here in Exodus 19. It's a huge moment in the history of Israel. Moses is just about to go up onto the mountain to receive the law for God's people. But before he goes up, God speaks to him. Verse 3. This is what you're to say to the house of Jacob. This is what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations on the earth, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to the Israelites. Have you ever heard anything more beautiful? Look at the imagery. God talks about how he rescued them out of Egypt. I carried you on eagle's wings. I see Amazon Prime are currently showing the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. 
reputed to be the most expensive television series ever made, a kind of a prequel to the Lord of the Rings movies that so many of us watched. How many of you know your Tolkien, the original stories, The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings? Think for a moment about the the occasions in those stories when the good guys get into really serious trouble, the kind of trouble where they can't even begin to imagine how they might escape. I'm thinking of the dwarves in the pine forest with the orcs and the wargs ready to burn them down out of the trees and to finish them off. There's that time when Gandalf's imprisoned on the top of Orthanc, Saruman's tower, with no possible means of escape. Bilbo and Sam on the slopes of an erupting Mount Doom, Aragorn with his small army surrounded outside the Black Gate and facing inevitable annihilation. Each of them, each situation seems entirely hopeless. There's no way out. Death is inevitable. Until, until the eagles appear. Time after time in his epic stories, Tolkien uses the eagles to come and to rescue his heroes in their hour of need. I like to think that Tolkien knew his Bible. He knows his Exodus imagery. What is it that the Lord says to his people, Israel? I carried you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. You were slaves in Egypt. You'd been there 400 years. You couldn't even begin to imagine how you might ever escape. Everything was hopeless until until I came, I saved you, I rescued you, and carried you on eagles' wings. It's beautiful. But remember what we're learning here this morning. We're learning that God's covenant is all of grace, even in the Old Testament. Notice now the timing in Exodus 19. God rescued his people out of Egypt Before chapter 20, he gives them the law. That means his rescue wasn't because they were good. It wasn't because they'd been keeping the law. They didn't even have the law. He rescued them and he saved them because he chose to. He singled them out as objects of his love. It's all of grace. Here in Exodus 19, we see in the most definitive way possible that the law doesn't save. It couldn't be the law that saved Israel because they didn't have the law. It's all grace with God. It's always been and always will be all grace. You know, Some people who don't believe think that Christianity is all about laws. Some people who do believe and who've been told that it's all of grace and might tell you themselves that it's all of grace still live as if it was all about law. Neither of them have read their Bible. They haven't understood 
God's grace. Explaining these things to the believers in Rome, Paul tells them that God doesn't wait until we're good before he rescues us. He tells us that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. To the believers in Ephesus, he explains that God didn't accept them because they were good, keeping the law. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Folks, the first thing we learn about God's covenant this morning is that God relates to us in grace. We'll spend the remaining time noticing that God invites us to freedom. So at this point, I'm, I'm maybe trying to read your mind. If you're engaged, I'm, I'm going to guess that at least some of you are saying, Christoph, we've just read Deuteronomy 5. We've just read the Ten Commandments, a chapter full of laws, full of thou shalt nots or you shall nots in the, the contemporary language. How exactly are you going to make the case that that has anything to do with freedom? Well, I'm going to make precisely that case. I'm going to ask you again to leave behind everything that you think about when you think about law and how they work. And remember instead that these are terms of a covenant, a relationship God makes with his new bride, his beloved Israel. But I want to take that a little bit further. I want you to notice that he's saying what he's saying here to a particular people at a particular moment in their history. Look again at verse 6. It couldn't be clearer. This makes all the difference in the world. If we take carefully the context here, it means that we don't read these laws as if they've fallen out of the sky from an unknown mysterious being without any regard of who they're given to. No, this is Yahweh, the God of Israel, giving the laws to the people he's just rescued from Egypt. Three months ago, just a matter of weeks ago, they'd been slaves, slaves in Egypt. So the question for these people who have now been set free is how can we preserve this freedom that we've been given? And when you read them in the light of the Exodus, the Ten Commandments start to read a whole lot less like laws and more like a bill of rights. God doesn't want these people to be slaves again. He wants them to choose to live free. And each of these laws reinforces the notion. You're not persuaded? Let's have a quick look. Verse 7 and following, the, the Ten Commandments, they're all an invitation to freedom. When you're in slavery in Egypt, Israel had been slaves to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, by the way, claimed to be a god. So for 400 years, God's people have been living under a, a god. But the events of the Exodus have proved Pharaoh to be wrong. So Yahweh now, the true and living God, gives this first command. And he says, have no other gods before me. Don't allow yourselves ever to live under Pharaoh again. Egypt 
if you conjure up a picture of Egypt in your mind, you'll know straight away that they were big into their, their imagery, their, their carvings and their statues. It would have been full of false gods, false representations of gods. Hence the second command. Don't make for yourselves any, any images. God's name plays an important role in the Exodus narrative. You might remember that if you remember Moses at the burning bush and the, the emphasis there on God's name. God's name in Exodus is associated with his power. And the third commandment tells us that we shouldn't attempt to use the power of that name for any personal, any evil, or any trivial purpose. What's the worst part of life in Egypt? If you're a slave, if you have no freedom, you get no rest. Can you imagine what a gift this fourth commandment is? A day off? We haven't had one of those for hundreds of years. A day off. And you're commanded to have it. Do you see now how these laws are a gift enshrining new freedom? In Egypt, Pharaoh attacked Israel's families now in their new free society keeping the fifth command will ensure that the families and that network of wider families will remain intact the seventh commandment forbidding adultery would also serve to to maintain help maintain the family uh, we've already said it in Egypt Israel were victims of a, a state-sponsored program of selective genocide the sixth commandment says, let's put an end to that. No more unlawful killing. In Egypt, Israel had been economically exploited. The Eighth Commandment rules out theft. The Tenth Commandment forbids covetousness, the thing that drives us to steal from and exploit each other. And in their new free society, the integrity of justice and the legal system must at all costs be protected. And hence that ninth commandment, forbidding false witness. Folks, do you see what a godsend these laws would have been to Israel? These thou shalt nots are all there with a view to one great thou shalt. Obey these laws, says the Lord. Listen to my voice. Walk in my ways. And thou shalt know freedom and know life. We began here this morning by noticing that our culture gives us unprecedented freedoms. But also noticing that for many, it hasn't delivered life. There's no happily ever Our God, who calls us to walk in his ways, invites us to live happily ever after. Look at verse 33. Walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in that land that you'll possess. Choose freedom and choose life. I wonder, do you know how this story progresses? The people of Israel at Sinai had wanted to choose life. 
It wanted to choose freedom. Look at chapter 5, verse 27. Moses reminds this generation of the moment when their parents had commissioned him. Their parents had said, go near and listen to all the Lord your God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you. We will listen and obey. They, they wanted to do it. They wanted to choose freedom and find life, but they didn't, did they? We've already seen how they failed in the intervening 40 years since Sinai, how they rebelled and they wandered in the desert. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment, don't make for yourself a graven image. As soon as the ink is drying on the 10 commandments, what are they doing? Golden calf. These people weren't able to live free. They couldn't choose life. The whole Old Testament tells a story of people who, who couldn't keep covenant with God, who couldn't retain their freedom. They were enslaved over and over and over again, finally and catastrophically in Assyria and Babylon. We're no different, really, are we? We too allow ourselves to be enslaved over and over again. Slaves to addictive substances, to the opinions of others, to the depressing catalog of our own sinful passions, our pride, our envy, and our hatred. slaves and there's no way out just like Israel in Egypt we need someone to come and to rescue us to lift us on eagle's wings we need a savior we need him to come and to lead a new exodus we need a Passover lamb we need one who'll keep the law because we can't. We need one whose blood will be shed in place of ours. And in a moment, we'll come to this table and we'll remember him. His body broken for us. His blood shed for us. Before we do that, we're going to take a moment just now to receive a couple of new communicants. So I'm going to invite Curtis and Harrison to come forward and to join me and meet me on the platform. Folks, those of you who are here at our June communion may have gathered that we plan to welcome our communicants once a year at our, our June communion. Not everyone was able to be present on that occasion. None of the three of us were here, gentlemen. Um, so we're taking this opportunity this morning to receive 
Curtis and Harrison Bell. They have both been instructed in the teaching of the church. They have been approved by our Kirk session and they're ready to make a public profession of their faith in Jesus and their commitment to his church. Curtis and Harrison, you have been baptized 